Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I never liked Rustic Gable's skilled nursing facility. Years ago, I worked as an EMT for Meditrans Ambulance Service. We did inter-facility transports, mostly dialysis runs and hospital discharges, so I spent a lot of time around crappy nursing homes. But even with my bar set as low as it was, Rustic Gable's SNF still managed to underwhelm. The four-story building itself put off an air of hostility. Near Six and Alvarado in a slummy corner of Westlake, Rustic Gables sat like a diseased tooth, a squat, square, filthy white structure jutting out of the narrow, uneven parking lot, surrounded by a 14-foot fence. Inside Rustic Gables was, well, exactly how you'd expect. The residents were crammed four to a two-small room every August. Half the ancient window air units broke down. Their one-and-a-half-star rating was on display over the reception desk, and I'm pretty sure they only managed the extra half-star because someone knew how to BS the inspector. The faceless healthcare conglomerate that owned the place had bought the property from a bank auction, and all that said, I'd never leave anyone I loved at Rustic Gables. Rustic Gables burned through nurses like cheap cigarettes. It seemed like every time I approached a nursing station, I was greeted by a different young woman in stained scrubs. Meanwhile, my partner and I would run into ex-Rustic Gables employees everywhere we went. Dialysis centers, hospitals, other SNFs. It was rumored that Rustic Gables was haunted. There were stories that were told of eerie voices behind patients' closed doors, of strangers seen wandering the halls, of objects moving by themselves, and of staff members somehow teleporting themselves all over the facility without realizing it. I heard more than one tale in which the tellers swore they'd seen a nurse walk into a patient's room, fail to reappear, then found on the next floor up, swearing she hadn't been near the patient's room in hours. Once, a patient had been killed when a nurse gave her a second dose of medication, sending her into hypovolemic shock. The guilty nurse swore that she'd spoken to the medical director in person and that he'd given her orders for the extra dose. That was obviously bullshit. The medical director had been in his office, miles away, with multiple witnesses. But the nurse was insistent, even after she pled guilty to avoid jail time. I highly doubted that incident was the work of ghosts. A hangover was more likely the culprit. 
But even the most skeptical of the ex-nurses agreed they'd gotten a bad vibe working at Rustic Gables, especially at night. In early 2010, my wife Lily told me she'd gotten a job at Rustic Gables. I warned her that everybody who worked there hated the place and offered to continue paying the lion's share of our bills until she could find other employment. You want me to say screw you to a full-time nursing job with benefits? She snapped, squishing her mouth into a pissy little bow. I'm sick of working at Subway. Do you honestly think anyone else is going to offer me anything with absolutely zero experience? She had me there. The oversaturated medical job market of Los Angeles was a tough spot for a recently graduated licensed vocational nurse, especially in the middle of a recession. Listen, I get it, I told her, but I'm making enough money now, and I don't think you're going to like Rusty Gables much. People say it's haunted, and you hate horror. Lily flashed me a condescending, pursed lip smile. She knew I hated that smile. She was a tiny girl, my wife, barely five feet tall and maybe a hundred pounds, soaking wet. Her eyes were opal-shaped and deep-set in her square face. She had long, dark, silky hair, and a clump of it fell over an eye. But you're not making enough money, Cyrus, and I would rather hang out with Casper the Friendly Ghost than ask my dad for money. Again. I closed my eyes and counted to ten. She was baiting me. Her parents didn't like me much, because I didn't have a college degree and my parents were alcoholic white trash. And her father had loaned us money twice in the last year. Once the previous January when we signed the lease and had to cough up first and last deposit for a microcosmic Koreatown one-bedroom. And once in August when my car broke down. Fine, Lil, I said through clenched teeth. Just do what you want. And with that, I went to shower and get ready for bed. Our marriage was doomed. We both knew it. But neither of us had the balls to give that final nail in the coffin the mighty whack that it needed. Lily took the job. A couple of days later, during her second training shift... My partner, Rivera, and I were sent to Rustic Gables to pick up a patient. A patient, too, of course, lived on the first floor, where Lily was stationed. Our patient was a bed-confined octogenarian going to St. Vincent for a G-tube replacement. It should have been a quick, drama-free call, but the nurses didn't have the paperwork done yet. Lily was being a complete asshole about it, hanging over the shoulder of the charge nurse, smiling her noxious, pursed lip smile as her new friend berated us over the pickup time, as though it were our fault they didn't have their shit together. Rivera went to the ambulance to charge his phone, and I'd grip my teeth so hard that my skull hurt. In a half-glance at Lily's haughty profile, it was enough to propel bolts of pain up my jaw. For the sake of professionalism and my sanity, I just walked away. I wandered to the mismatched front lobby, 
and there I found a shriveled old woman with dyed orange hair, curled up on a stained couch. A nasal canula dangled from her face, attached to an oxygen canister on the back of her rickety wheelchair. Her eyes snapped open, and when she saw me, her face fell. How are you doing, ma'am? I asked sweetly. Do you need any help? She mumbled something, her voice weak. I hunched beside her and asked her to repeat what she said. I'm waiting for Scott. I looked around. Is Scott your nurse? I could find him if you want me to. She shook her head sadly. He comes here at night. He talks to me. I've got to stay here or I won't see him. I breathed in and found that the lobby had a weird smell to it. Kind of rotten, but kind of sweet. Like the funk that filled our station when the shared fridge was opened. The orange-haired lady didn't seem bothered by it, but I was relieved to see Rivera around the corner, paperwork in hand. I came home after Lily. She pretended to be asleep. The next morning, she was gone before I woke up. Perfect situation, I thought. Now we never have to talk. Now, a couple of weeks later, my company picked up another dialysis patient out of Rustic Gables. And soon, Rivera and I were sent to get him. On the way in, I spotted the same orange-haired woman on the same stained couch, still waiting for Scott. The new dialysis patient, let's call him Herbert Smith, was 79 and not doing very well. He was bedbound due to lingering effects of a stroke, half blind and atrophied. He looked in my general direction when I called his name, but responded all further inquiries with incomprehensible muttering. His room, happily, was on the third floor, which put a whole story between myself and Lily. We got him loaded in the ambulance, and after a set of vitals, I took advantage of the 15-minute drive to Western Dialysis to finish some paperwork. Herbert Smith stared mindlessly ahead, seemingly unaware of my presence. And then, he mumbled something. I looked up from my writing. What's that, Herbert? I asked loudly. The one-legged man talks to me. The one-legged man talks to me, he repeated. I leaned in. Who talks to you, Herbert? The Oriental man. The man with one leg. He comes in my room at night. Herbert's milky eyes were unfocused, staring vacuously into some point between the road and the ceiling of the ambulance. The Oriental man, huh? I pressed indulgently. Yeah, he's angry with me, Herbert continued, speaking to oblivion. He knows I left him. I wish he'd go away. That night, I came home to every light in the apartment dawn, and Lily in the kitchen making a cup of tea. This was a surprise as she'd gotten into the habit of feigning sleep. On the rare occasions, she'd exchange a few words with me, and she'd done so with a constipated pout as though my presence was physically painful. You still awake, Lil? I asked without thinking. I immediately realized the stupidity of the question, and I braced for the sarcastic answer. 
but the nasty remark didn't come. Yeah, Lily replied nonchalantly. I have a headache. She looked at me, and for the first time in a while, I didn't see contempt in her eyes. I realized, all of a sudden, that I no longer remembered how to act around Lily without picking a fight or continuing one. Then I thought of something. Lily? I asked. The old woman who's always on the chair by the door, you know, with the bright orange hair and the oxygen. Who is she? Lily frowned. Her name's Greta. She's in my station. She's, uh, she's pretty far gone. I talked to her, I said. She said she was, um, waiting for Scott. Oh, I know. Lily shook her head. Scott's not coming. He was Greta's son. He died of cancer five years ago. There's pictures of him all around her room. This piece of information jolted me. I remember the look in Greta's eyes when I'd woken her. Pure happiness, then immediate disappointment when she realized I was not, in fact, her long-deceased child. Poor old bird. Dementia's a bitch. I thought that night was a fluke, as far as my and Lily's relationship was concerned. Lily, tired and in pain, hadn't had the energy to antagonize me. But the next night, I came home to her awake again, and decidedly unantagonistic. And the next, and well, the next after that. And then there was one night I came home to find her huddled on the couch, shaking, the glow from the muted TV illuminating her tears. My first impulse was to run. I'd long forgotten how to comfort Lily. But... I'm not an impulsive person. What came next was the first honest conversation we'd had in months. Lily had been on edge for weeks. Work was the problem. Her shifts at Rustic Gables had become both physically and mentally unbearable, for reasons she couldn't justify to herself, let alone anybody else. I just... As soon as I walk in... My chest tightens up and I start feeling weak, she said. I'm scared of something, but I don't know what it is. And whenever I'm alone, I hear things, you know, like little noises behind me. But when I turn to see if there's anything there, there's nothing. I reiterated that she could leave, that I'd pay the bills and that I'd known other nurses who left because the place was just way too creepy. But Lily shook her head decisively. She wasn't batshit, and if she quit after working at Rustic Gables for barely a month, she'd appear flaky. The next day was Herbert Smith's dialysis day, and Rivera and I were the crew sent to pick him up. The young nurse on duty told me he was being showered. We'd have to wait a few minutes. I considered going to find Lily. Then I was drawn to a feature of Herbert Smith's room that I hadn't noticed. There was a bulletin board on the wall parallel to his bed, and someone had pinned up several old newspaper clippings. I took a closer look. Herbert had been a medic during the Korean War. One article, titled Wounded Hero Welcomed Home, described his commendable service. 
he'd found a young soldier with a chest wound lying on a path. All of a sudden, bullets started flying around them. He pulled the soldier into a ditch, patched him up, and waited with him until they were found by an American platoon. While Herbert was hailed as a hero, he had regrets about the incident. He'd seen another man, a Korean villager, laying on the ground with a nasty wound on his leg. The man was writhing, but too weak to remove himself from danger. Herbert had been conflicted, but he could still hear gunshots, and following protocol, he stayed put. By the time help arrived, the Korean man had died. The article included pictures taken by a soldier in the platoon. In one of them, you could just make out the face of the dead Korean in the background. I remembered Herbert's comments about the oriental man with one leg, the one he hadn't gone back for. As long as I'd known him, Herbert hadn't looked great, but I was surprised at just how severely his health had deteriorated. His atrophied limbs had become skeletal, his skin was translucent, and he'd lost hair. His cloudy eyes didn't even flicker as we lifted him from his bed to the gurney. Now I drove that day. Rivera sat in the back with Herbert. As we wheeled the old man in, I asked Rivera if he'd said anything strange in the back. Rivera gave me a weird look. He wasn't aware Herbert could speak at all. Herbert was completely unresponsive as we placed him in his dialysis chair. He slumped to one side, then we propped him up with a pillow. While Rivera chased the tech for a signature, I wrapped the blood pressure cuff attached to the dialysis machine around Herbert's arm. Before I knew what was happening, Herbert Smith was clutching my bicep. I jumped. The old man kept hold. His grip stronger than his spindly fingers could have allowed. His milky white eyes bored into mine. The oriental man says he's going to take me with him. I wrenched my arm out of his grasp. Herbert went limp and flopped over. I called his name, but his ashen face drooped dumbly and his liquid eyes were dull. Whoever had spoken to me was logged off, signed out. Hell, no longer in the building. 45 minutes into dialysis, Herbert violently tore the blood-filled tubes from his arm. The staff attempted to stop the bleeding, but he fought them off with an alarming level of ferocity. It was said that Herbert Smith never looked so peaceful as he had while being carried out by paramedics, already into irreversible shock. He died before they made it to the hospital. Now, I remained ignorant as this was all going on. Rivera and I ran a few more calls. I drove in and out of the hospital parking lots, pondering Herbert's Korean ghost. And later, at around six, I received a text from Lily. That was hot, Sai. It was a weird thing to say. I assumed she meant our conversation the night before, responded with a single smiley face and thought about it all afternoon. For months, I'd wanted Lily gone, 
I'd fantasized about coming home and discovering that, hell, she moved out. But when I read that text, I felt a little twinge of the ecstasy she inspired in me when we were 18 and obsessed with each other. As soon as I walked into our apartment, Lily jumped me. Wordlessly, passionately, we made love on the couch. Her perfume, her red lipstick, her hair tickling my skin. It was intoxicating. It was instinctive, animalistic. And when we finished, we lay entangled on the couch, strands of her hair still in my mouth. That was amazing, I muttered to her. I'm so glad we did that. You started it, she teased, running her hand across my chest. That was a pretty hot kiss. The charge nurse was pissed, but it was worth it. What's the charge nurse got to do with anything? I asked innocently. Lily pulled away. She sat up. You came to see me at Rustic Gables. You kissed me right in front of all the other nurses. I went cold. Lily, I said. I didn't do that. I was at Rustic Gables in the morning to pick up Mr. Smith, but I didn't see you at all. I didn't kiss you. She forced a laugh. <laughs> Sigh. Stop fucking joking. Unless you've got a twin that I don't know about, you kissed me today. The other nurses all saw. Well, I don't know what to tell you, Lil, I said. I was on the third floor for like 15 minutes and then in the ambulance the rest of the day. Lily glared, shoving me out of the way. She grabbed her clothes and stood up. You know what? Fuck you, Cyrus. You're a fucking liar. And with that, she stomped into our bedroom and slammed the door. In the morning, she was gone before I woke up. The whole thing bothered me. Apparently, Lily had been passionately kissed in front of her co-workers by a guy who looked just like me. Now, I'd long suspected she had an undiagnosed bipolar disorder, but I might have been wrong. Maybe undiagnosed schizophrenia. Now, two days later, Rivera and I were sent for Herbert Smith. The nurse at Rustic Gables told us he was dead. Rivera went to call dispatch and to tell him that, in fact, our services were not needed. I waited with the gurney in the front lobby. Orange-haired Greta was curled up on the couch, presumably still waiting for Scott. Poor lady. I tried to catch her eye, but she was oblivious to my presence. Then I saw tears running down her face. I would have gone to talk to her if a hand hadn't jerked my arm. I whirled around and found myself face to face with Lily. Her eyes were puffy and bloodshot. She was pissed. There you are, she snapped. What the fuck, Cyrus? You're messing with me now? Lily, what are you talking about? Oh, I heard you calling my name, she said, unable to control the treble in her voice. Down the hall, in that fucking creepy voice. Where were you hiding? Were you under a bed or something? Lily, <laughs> I didn't do that. I've 
literally been standing right here. It was your voice, Lily insisted, saying, Lily, come to me. I was handing out meds and I heard you. You know, I'm so fucking sick of your jokes. Lily, I'm... I started. Screw you, Cyrus. I want a divorce. And with that, she stomped back to the nurse's station. I didn't go after her. I stood there, useless, fuming. All the anger and resentment I'd been nursing for months, the frustration of never ever being good enough for Lily swirled around me like a tornado. I wanted her dead. I wanted to wrap my fingers around her tiny ass neck and stare into her protruding eyes until they glazed over. If Rivera hadn't come to tell me that we had another call, well, I'm not sure what I would have done. We spent the rest of the night with one of the respiratory therapists, wedging a 400-pound, ventilator-dependent vegetable onto our gurney and driving him to a crappy post-acute in Silmar. As we drove back to the station, I saw that I had two missed calls from Lily and that she'd left me a voice message. I ignored it, even thinking about her jacked my blood pressure. Lily didn't come home that night, and I was relieved. The next morning I was dismayed to see the address of Rustic Gables flash across our pager. We were picking up a psych patient, an old lady with dementia wigging out, going to the Brotman psychiatric ward. The name of the patient? Greta, the orange-haired lady in the lobby, who's always waiting for Scott. It started a little after midnight, the charge nurse told me. All of a sudden, she was screaming and crying. Well, I'd never heard anything like it before, just this anguished, otherworldly wailing. Had she had any change in medications recently? I asked. The nurse shook her head. Her son, Scott, died about five years ago. She was very devoted to him, and she'd been telling some of the nurses that he comes and sees her at night. I nodded sympathetically. Anyways, the nurse continued. Last night, she kept on screaming Scott's name over and over. Well, we got her into bed and gave her a sleeping pill, but it didn't take. She woke up around three, dragged herself out of bed and into the hallway, and we found her pawing at the door of a storage closet. They had Greta restrained in the bed, unnecessarily so, or I thought, as whatever sedative they'd given her had reduced her to a near comatose state. We moved her onto the gurney without issue, but in the back of the ambulance, she squirmed around and opened her eyes. She threw a languid look in my direction, so, Greta, I said kindly, hoping my voice would keep her quiet. How are you doing today? Have the nurses been treating you well? Scott came to me, she said emotionlessly. The words hit me like a punch. Nah, Greta, let's not talk about Scott, okay? He was burning, Greta continued as though she hadn't heard me. His face was melting. He was screaming in pain. 
tears welled in her eyes. Then, then it wasn't Scott anymore. It was this monster. This demon. And he told me that's what Scott looked like. In hell, she sobbed. I might have said something comforting. If I did, it had no effect. I don't remember. In that moment, or at that moment, I'd never been more disturbed in my entire life. Greta didn't speak again. She just cried, tears and snot collecting in her wrinkles. She cried all the way to Brotman and kept on crying as we waited for her room to be ready. We heard her moans as we pulled our gurney down the sixth floor hall until the elevator doors closed. Lily didn't come home that night. Days passed. I was given no clue as to her whereabouts. I called a few times, but her phone was off. I should have been concerned that she left so much of her stuff in the apartment, but she had her ID and bank cards, and had plenty of scrubs stowed at her parents' house in Rosemead, and I assumed no one in her family was fond enough of me to call. Finally, a week later, Rivera and I were sent back to Rustic Gables. Now, I don't remember who or what we were supposed to pick up. We were walking through the little lobby, noticing Greta's absence, when I felt hands around my waist. Tiny, perfectly manicured hands. Lily stood behind me, looking happier than she had in a year. Rivera shook his head playfully and told me he'd meet me on the second floor. When he was gone, Lily took me by the hand and led me away, towards the back door, which was only ever used by nurses sneaking a smoke. Down a narrow hallway I'd never noticed, which extended to the left of the back door and dead-ended. Lil, I said, where the hell have you been? I was starting to get worried. She stopped pulling and turned around, holding me close. She wrapped her arms around my neck, stood on her tiptoes, and kissed me passionately. I've been with a friend, she murmured into my ear. I miss you, Cyrus. She kissed me again, then pulled away and resumed tugging my hand with surprising strength. She stopped in front of a nondescript little closet, across from the janitor's storage. Make love to me, Cyrus, she breathed, her voice thick and sultry. I know a special place. She reached for the doorknob, and as soon as she let go of my hand, my senses came crashing back down to earth. Lil, I said kindly, I've got to pick up a patient. Come home tonight. We'll talk then. She gazed into my eyes with a come-hither smile, and for some reason, this freaked me out. Maybe because her mouth seemed to extend a little too far into her cheeks, or maybe because in the six years we'd been a couple, Lily had never once used the phrase, make love to me. One way or another, my weird radar blipped, and with one more come home tonight, Lil, I escaped the elevator. Cyrus, Lily called after me. I didn't turn around. 
On the second floor, I found Rivera talking to a squat Korean woman I recognized as the first floor head nurse, Lily's supervisor. The nurse glared when she saw me. Hey, you, she said gruffly. You're Lily's husband, right? I nodded, inviting the catty comment. Where has your wife been? She asked. Her phone's dead. She hasn't shown up for work in a week. Um, she's here, I said. She's downstairs. I just spoke with her. The nurse shook her head. Well, I haven't seen her all day, and I just left the desk five minutes ago. She hasn't clocked in since the 12th. I was confused. I told the nurse something, then ran down the stairs to the first floor, dead set on finding Lily and proving her presence. I kissed her. I'd felt her arms around me. So either she was deliberately messing with her boss, or else her boss was crazy. Or I was crazy. But no one was at the first floor nurse's desk. I paced the halls, peeking into rooms. Nothing. No Lily. Then I thought of something. She hadn't clocked in since the 12th. The 12th of February. See, that sounded familiar. I checked my phone. The last missed call from Lily had occurred on the 12th of February. That was the day she chased me down in the lobby, accused me of calling her name in a creepy voice, and demanded a divorce. I saw the voicemail icon and recalled that she had left me a message that day. I dialed my voicemail, deleted a few messages, and then I heard my wife's voice, her sobbing, panicked, terrified voice. Cyrus, she breathed. Cyrus, I know you're not here, but I keep on hearing your voice, and I saw you again, but it wasn't you, because your face was all blurry. Then you, you walked into the closet, and you disappeared. Is this a joke? Please tell me this is a... She gasped, and I heard the phone drop. Then a muffled male voice, a voice that sounded terrifyingly familiar saying something like, found you. Then I heard another voice, my wife's voice, calling my name, but it wasn't coming from my phone. I followed the voice. It was coming from the back entrance, from the direction of the closet Lily had tried to drag me into. As I approached, I remember what I'd been told about old Greta. She freaked out, and they'd found her pawing at a closet door, and I wondered, had it been this door? I turned the knob, and I flicked on the light switch. I found myself staring at a tiny, dusty storage room, seemingly used as a dumping ground for cardboard boxes and broken equipment. The floor was peeling linoleum, and cobwebs hung from the two cheap metal shelves, a healthy coating of dust told me this room was rarely accessed by the nursing staff. And I heard it again. Cyrus. Cyrus. I did a 360. Then was hit with the dizzying realization that the voice was coming from under the floor. Now anyone with the IQ of a monkey could tell you 
I should have bailed. That disembodied voice calling my name beneath the floor on the first story of a building was not a phenomenon I should investigate alone. But somewhere between my soft core script conversation with Lily and her gut-churning message on my phone, I stopped thinking logically. I looked around. No doors, no stairs, and I knew there wasn't a basement button on the elevators. But then I saw it. Under one of the shelves, a trap door, and a small black object. I knelt to look. A Motorola razor with a Hello Kitty bobble and a small crack to the bottom left of the screen. That was Lily's phone. The discovery turbocharged my nervous system. I stood up, grabbed the shelf, and pulled. And with a loud vroom, the metal structure pivoted. I examined the trap door. It was latched and fastened with a dusty, rusted lock. Lily's voice, louder, floated up from below. Cyrus, come find me, Cyrus. And using my pocket knife, I easily picked the ancient lock. Then I lifted. I saw darkness. As my eyes adjusted, I saw stairs. Damp, rotting, wooden stairs leading down to some sort of cellar. I breathed in and gagged. The musty, earthy smell was overpowering. It was the smell of a wooden shed after the rain, mixed with the smell of a compost heap, mixed with a smell reminiscent of the family of possums that had gotten trapped under my mother's mobile home one December, died, and rotted until spring. Cyrus? Lily cried again. This time, she sounded agitated, scared. I took a deep breath, and then I descended. I proceeded cautiously, cell phone in one hand, pocket knife clutched in the other. Step by step, the pale blue light of my cell screen, I saw the floor was dirt. I made out a dark blotch that must have been a puddle, and I heard faint dripping. The walls were gray cinder block with black designs painted on them, and then my feeble light fell on a woman with blue scrubs and long black hair. Lily. Lil, I cried out. Lily, what the fuck are you doing? Shh. She put her finger to my lips as she approached out of the darkness. Then I was standing on the earthen floor, and she was close. Close enough for me to see that her features weren't right. Her eyes were too small. Her nose too flat. She took my hands. Her features shifted, blurring in and out of focus. Was it an effect of the light seeping in through the trap door? Were my eyes still adjusting? And why had Lily, of all places, chosen... And then her mouth was against my mouth. I couldn't eat for three days. I felt her warm tongue dissolve in my mouth turned cold and dead, break into icy chunks that tasted like dust and stringe cabbage and rotting fish, expanding in my throat, choking me. I pulled away, coughing and sputtering and trying to scream. I dropped my phone as well, and as I dry heaved, 
I heard Lily's laughter. Now it sounded distant, and without thinking, I stood up. My phone had landed in the puddle, creating an inverted spotlight. A body, noose around its neck, hung from the rafters. Immobilized by terror, I was forced to take in every detail. Blue scrubs, feet dangling lifelessly, claw-like hands, plaster still in rigor mortis. Long black hair, purple cheeks, open mouth, swollen tongue, dripping dark saliva. Bloodshot opal eyes protruding like a demented cartoon characters, staring into oblivion. Lily. Dead. Lily. I don't know how long I stared at my dead wife hanging from the ceiling before I felt the hand on my shoulder. Jolted from my traumatized paralysis, I turned around. Illuminated by the light from the open trap door was me. My mirror image stood in front of me. While Lily's doppelganger had flitted in and out of focus, mine was explicitly, grossly exact in every last detail. The little hairs on my unshaved cheeks, the red pimple on my forehead, the scar at the corner of my eye from when I fell off my bike during one of my second stepfather's drunken rampages. It's just that my smile was malicious, triumphant even. And then it spoke in a twisted, modulated mockery of my voice. Aren't you going to say thank you? And then it started to melt. Now, I don't remember much after that. I heard my own voice screaming. Whether it was me or my putrefying doppelganger, I didn't care to find out. There were more voices. Women's voices. Women's screams. Rough hands on me. An arm around my shoulders leading me up, up, and then sunlight, and then sirens. Lily had been dead for more than a week. That's what the police officers told me the second time I was questioned. The types of questions they were asking, I was sure they were going to pin it on me, especially given the nature of my and Lily's relationship. But they didn't. In the end, they ruled her death a suicide. She died by strangulation, though they didn't know how she'd managed it. She must have found the rope already hanging from the rafters. The cellar was 14 feet high. There was just no way she would have been able to climb up and tie it herself, nor could they find the chair or stool she had jumped off. They didn't know how she found the basement. None of the nurses knew the dirt-floored cellar even existed, and when the healthcare corporation had bought and gutted the place, they'd left the back of the first floor as it was. No attention had been paid to the sad little closet and no one could explain how she gotten down into the basement in the first place. There was only one entrance, the trap door. The trap door I'd found, locked, from the outside. Even with the coroner's reports, the cops had trouble pinning down a timeline. Lily had gone missing on the 12th. Of that, the head nurse was adamant. I insisted I had seen her, alive, on the day her body was found. Rivera backed me up. 
we weren't alone. Another nurse had a conversation with Lily on the 15th. She remembered the day because it was the day after Valentine's Day. And a patient claimed he hadn't actually seen Lily, as it had been dark and his eyesight wasn't what it used to be, but had heard her voice singing to him in his sleep. Now this one was particularly strange, because the night the old man had allegedly been sung to sleep by Lily was a good two weeks after she died, and a week after her decomposing body had been recovered. The cops wrote him off as confused, but I'm not so sure. I left town after Lily's funeral. My father in Bakersfield, with whom I hadn't spoke with in years, called out of the blue and invited me to stay with him. When the flashbacks stopped and the memories scarred over, I screwed my head back on and went to paramedic school. I found a job, ran the Baker to Vegas stretch for a few years, then decided to take the next step in my career. I only applied to LA City Fire because it was ultra-competitive, and I assumed I'd fail the psychiatric exam. When my new hire packet came in the mail, I picked it up off the porch with trembling hands. I wanted to say no, but LA City was a job a million guys would kill for. And my dad told me he'd just knock me out, throw me in the back of his truck, and leave me on the station steps if he had to. I moved back to Los Angeles in March of this year. I didn't know anyone. I'd lost touch with all my friends but Rivera. And Rivera was in New Jersey, burning through his fourth year of medical school. My new partner was a cool guy. He invited me to a barbecue at his church, promising there'd be a lot of people our age. There wasn't, but I did meet my new partner's uncle, Raul, a retired LAPD officer. We talked and I learned that he'd been one of the cops who investigated Lily's death. He was cool about it. I was never a suspect. He assured me suicide was the only logical conclusion. Logical conclusion, he said sarcastically. Then he asked me what I knew about supernatural phenomena. I forced a laugh, but he didn't. He asked me if I'd seen the cinder block walls of the basement, the underground room where Lily was found dead. There had been a little black designs, as I recalled. They were faces, he told me. Faces all over the basement walls. Some were recognizable, rustic gable employees, patients, visitors. Some were the faces of people whose pictures were displayed by the patients. Family members, dead friends, celebrities, hell, even the Pope. There were hundreds of them. And the strangest part was, they couldn't figure out how the faces had even gotten there. Samples were tested, no trace of paint or dye was found. Nothing would wash them away, and in the spots chipped for samples, the faces were redrawn in full within hours. My face was there, and so was Lily's, and on his third trip down, Raoul found his face. The owners of Rustic Gables made the unanimous decision to sell the property, and when no one bought it, they abandoned it shipping their 168 residents off to other facilities. 
Apparently, they had had more trouble with the place in the three years since remodeling than it was worth. There had been nine suicides in that time. Four patients, five staff members. Other mysterious deaths, too. One I'd heard about. The woman given an extra dosage of medication because the medical director told her nurse to do so. Another time, a physical therapist found a blind, non-ambulatory patient locked in the staff bathroom. Dead, with a pair of bandage shears sticking out of his chest. And then, there was the building's history. It had once been Section 8 housing. Raoul had been called there many times when he was a cop, and always got a weird vibe from the place. Other cops insisted the place was haunted. In 2001, the building nearly burned down. Arson. The 12-year-old boy locked his mother in her bedroom, set the couch on fire, then jumped out of a fourth-floor window. Seven people died, including an LAPD officer. Prior to that incident, the kid had been acting bizarrely, claiming to see the ghost of his father, who'd been murdered years before. Raoul and I parted ways. I drove home. I thought about orange-haired Greta, and I thought about Herbert Smith. She saw her dead son. He saw the man he regretted leaving behind. And Lily and I saw each other. Happier, lustier versions of each other. Versions that were still in love. The next day, I did some research on doppelgangers. Omens of doom, embodiments of one's dark side, like Jekyll and Hyde. This led me to the shadow of Junigan philosophy. One shadow is the manifestation of buried, selfish, evil thoughts. The thoughts you're not allowed to think. The thoughts that you deny. And I thought about what my doppelganger had said. Aren't she going to say, thank you? Whatever demon or spirit lived in that basement, it collected faces. It could shapeshift, becoming the spitting image of any human form it saw, and it knew our desires and our regrets, our fears. It came to Greta as her son, then used Greta's love to drive her mad. It recreated the image Herbert Smith saw in his guilty nightmares. I wanted Lily to love me again but part of me wanted her gone forever, and it gave me both. I drive by that building sometimes, the former rustic gables SNF, the asphalt is cracked now, and the windows are shattered. I wondered if the walls have changed, if there are now more faces, maybe those of transients or addicts who naively look to the abandoned structure for shelter. Sometimes, I catch something out of the corner of my eye, through a darkened window. Sometimes it looks like a human face staring back at me. But I never let my gaze linger for long. I fear I'll see her face, my mistakes, relive her death, and my inadvertent part in it. And I fear that I'll see my own.